Welcome to Reinventing Solidarity, a podcast of the journal New Labor Forum and the School of Labor and Urban Studies at the City University of New York. My name is Paula Finn, podcast host and editor of New Labor Forum. Reinventing Solidarity features scholars, activists, and artists on the front lines of movements for social and economic justice. We ask the essential and often provocative questions about race, class, gender, and the role of organized labor and social justice organizations in the work of creating a radically different world, a world with solidarity, equality, and sustainability at its heart. As the coronavirus surges across the U.S. during this holiday season, the biblical no room in the inn has become no room in the hospital. This is especially true in rural regions in the Midwest, South, and Southwest. Today's podcast explores one of the factors which has led to this crisis, the speculation in healthcare networks by private equity firms. In his fall 2020 column for New Labor Forum, and in this episode of Reinventing Solidarity, Max Fraser examines the profiteering by these firms that has contributed to the proliferation of healthcare deserts. He's joined in conversation by Samir Santi, books and arts editor for New Labor Forum and faculty member at the School of Labor and Urban Studies. Samir, there are a number of reasons why the distress of rural communities and the machinations of private equity firms deserve everyone's attention. Yes, it really does. We've just had another election in which this, the rural-urban political divide appears as stark as ever. And it can leave one with the impression that these, that these divides are unbridgeable. And I think what this discussion about private equity in rural America shows is, is that a lot of the problems that, that, especially when it comes to public health, to take this example, that people in rural parts of this country are facing are, are very similar to the ones that, say, retail workers, healthcare workers as well, and others in urban America are, are facing. And it's, it's all a product of a, a similar financialization that gets a fair amount of attention when it, when it impacts those on the coast, but happens somewhat invisibly in rural America, yet we're seeing right now great shortages of hospital capacity, for instance. And, and as Max points out in this piece that we're about to discuss, that is owing in large part to closures that were driven by private equity and other financial predatory investors' profit motives. So, you know, I guess above all, what this discussion reveals is the fact that there's a there's a, a strong similarity in the sources of some of the immiseration that's happening in rural America and in urban America. And if we follow the thread, it often comes back to similar financial institutions. And perhaps that can create some foundation for solidarity building going forward. Well, I'm really pleased that the podcast and the journal can play some kind of a role in uh, revealing what might be the basis of some future coalition building and bringing together rural and urban working class. Let's take a listen. 
I'm really excited for this discussion today with Max Frazier. Max is a professor of history at the University of Miami, where his research and teaching focuses on working class life and the social and social movements in the 20th century U.S., as well as the rise of new strains of conservatism in the decades after the Second World War. He's completing a book titled Hillbilly Highway, Trans-Appalachia and the Making of a White Working Class, which is scheduled to be pr published by Princeton University Press and promises to be an ind indispensable resource for understanding the politics of our times. Max is also a longtime contributor to New Labor Forum with his Organized Money column, which helps us get in the minds of corporate America. I always say we should all be reading the Financial Times and Wall Street Journal more frequently, but for those who just can't stand to do that, which I can commiserate with, um, you can count on Max to bring you some of the latest developments in a very succinct and incisive way. Our discussion today is inspired by Max's most recent organized money column in which he explores the impact private equity firms have had on the healthcare industry, and in particular, the role they've played in limiting access to care in rural areas through hospital closures and service reductions. Unfortunately, as we all know, the pandemic is now raging in rural America, with cases per capita in such places climbing much more rapidly than in large metro areas. With limited hospital capacity even before the pandemic, these areas are now under significant pressure, and that's unfortunately only going to intensify in the months to come. Max shows in his article that this limited hospital cap capacity didn't come out of nowhere. So given all these trends and, and the public health night nightmare we're, we're living through, Max's article in this discussion couldn't be more timely. And with that, Max, thank you so much for being here. And to, and to get us going, perhaps you could take a step back and, and explain what this somewhat perhaps unfamiliar term private equity means and how it works. Uh, yeah, sure. Well, and thanks for having me. Uh, it's complicated, of course, but to radically simplify, private equity firms or financial companies which... Uh, raise investment capital from a variety of sources, typically you know, institutional investors like pension funds, insurance companies, um, university endowments, sovereign wealth funds, th those kind of entities, also so-called high wealth individuals, uh, rich people, <laughs> and pool that investment capital into funds that they use to acquire equity ownership stakes of companies, typically privately traded companies. The, the goal for private equity is to uh, use those investments, make those investments over a relatively short time window, typically three to five years. And in that time, uh, restructure the companies that they buy in a whole variety of different kinds of ways to uh, enhance their profitability with the goal, again, of exiting the investment in, in that sort of uh, ideal time window at a profit, whether that means selling the company to another private buyer or bringing it to a you know, public offering. So that's the sort of typical private equity approach. Uh, the, the business model that they typically deploy in, in financing those acquisitions are the sort of so-called leveraged buyout. So these are typically acquisitions that involve a great deal of debt. A small, a small portion of the overall acquisition is financed by the equity investment of the, of the firm and its, and its gathered investors. And a larger share of it is, is debt that is taken on by the company being purchased, right? In other words, it's assets become the collateral for that debt. So using debt to finance the investments allows private equity firms and their investors to you know, multiply their investment in the long run when they're, when they're exiting it at the end. And at the same time, it often creates highly leveraged or debt indebted companies that, that uh, sort of have been acquired by those investors. 
And, and the, so this, the story about debt is really central. And, you know, if you people pay attention to the, the, the bankruptcies that you read about in, in the financial press, often, often, you know, you can trace it back to a private equity company, most recently, and perhaps infamously, Toys R Us, which went bankrupt. And, and we've heard about this in retail and in other industries a lot. But I'm, I'm curious why investors like this are so attracted to, to healthcare, And I guess also in particular, sort of related to your article, why rural healthcare? Because you know maybe I'm missing something, but it doesn't seem like that would be the most profitable investment to begin with. So, so why are these why are these types of investors drawn to the healthcare industry in general and and, and rural rural health facilities in particular? Yeah, well, and, and you're and you're and you're right to note the peculiarity of rural healthcare providers, rural hospitals being unusual, given that we think of them, even if we don't think of them very often, as being sort of financially distressed or not necessarily the most valuable assets. In a funny way, the answer to your first question, why healthcare, and your second question, why rural hospitals in particular, or, or rural healthcare providers are, are similar. You know, the, the most straightforward answer about why healthcare, of course, is that it's, you know, one of the most rapidly growing sectors of the overall economy, right? I mean, healthcare spending today is uh, accounts for nearly 20% of GDP, of course, growing at equivalent rates globally. So it is a as a broader sector of the economy, it's, it's one of the most leading profit-generating sectors of the economy overall. Another thing to keep in mind about healthcare is that of that massive pot of healthcare spending, right, that accounts for such a large share of GDP, a very significant portion of that is effectively sort of guaranteed income streams, right, which come from the federal government and other sort of so-called third-party payers, right? Today, through Medicare, Medicaid, and other government programs, the federal government is responsible for 40% of that giant larger pool of healthcare spending. So that means that there's a certain reliable cash flow in these businesses in, in the healthcare sector broadly that or sort of equivalent entity like Toys R Us in retail, there, there doesn't exist, right? If the economy tanks, people stop buying toys and, and uh, that sort of guaranteed revenue stream or cash flow goes away. So healthcare has that advantage also. The question about rural, I, I don't want to lose sight of though, because I think, you know, rural hospitals, rural healthcare providers are certainly not the most profitable sectors of the healthcare market um, and haven't been for some time. But on the other hand, what that makes them is as, you know, distressed assets, right? A relatively cheap assets to acquire and to acquire particularly in this, in what private equity often tries to do, acquiring a lot of small companies and smashing them together into larger regional or even national chains or, or sort of national healthcare systems of one kind or another. And it's easy, relatively easy to do that in rural markets on the one hand, because the assets themselves are cheap. And on the other hand, because they're cheap enough or, or furthermore, because they're cheap enough and in scattered enough markets that they often sort of fly below the radar of federal regulatory oversight around questions of antitrust and things like that. So these are often easy acquisitions to make both financially and from an oversight perspective. You talk in the article about a, case, a specific case at Community Health Systems, which was like HCA, one of the large publicly traded hospital corporations, as well as its spinoff Quorum Health Corporation. This, as you note in the piece, was one of the first instances of private equity investment in, in a hospital company, at least in the mid 90s. So can you and there, were, and there were some problems, to say the least, associated with that. So could you talk a little bit about, about the, the CHS and the quorum case and what it reveals about this business model in healthcare? Yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, it's a perfect example of what we've just been talking about. I mean, the investment, right, which really was the first major private equity investment in, in the health in the hospital market was a ringing success for the private equity firm that financed it, Forceman Little, brought community health service systems private in 1996. By the time Forceman Little fully exited, it in, exited its investment in, I think, 2004 or so, its initial investment had tripled in value. It had tripled its, the value of its initial investment. In the process, though, we created a profoundly economically unhealthy company. Um, when community health systems had its initial public offering, again, was, was after its sort of restructuring in 2001, I believe, it became a publicly traded company, again, with a debt to equity ratio of, I think, about 160%, which is you know probably meaningless to most of us. But for some comparison, that's about four times what a typical publicly traded company has in terms of the ratio of its debt to equity on its balance sheets. That was in 2001. Between then and, or I think mid-2000, between then and about 2017, community health systems with a lot of private equity funding, even though private equity was no longer the owner, uh, no longer owned the largest share of the company, engage on a kind of blitzkrieg of mergers and acquisitions, buying up something like 65 other hospital systems around the country, kind of replicating the buy and build, uh, leverage buyout, private equity model. By, by 2017, CHS had become the largest hospital system in the country by number of hospitals. So HCA was the largest by revenue but CHS was the largest by number of hospitals. But at that point, its debt to equity ratio had ballooned to something like 400%. So it was three times as high as it was when it went public. So by no means was this a economically viable company. And so in 2017, in part as it was no longer able to meet its debt obligations, CHS began divesting itself of hospitals rapidly, right? Trying to sell off all of the over-leveraged property it had accumulated, took a group of least valuable properties, rural hospitals, 38 of them, and it put them, it spun them off into a separate entity called Quorum Health, or it, Quorum Health had been a sort of subsidiary of CHS for a while, it spun it off as a separate entity. CHS made $1.2 billion off of spinning off this sort of rural, separate rural hospital network it called Quorum. Quorum paid it. $1.2 billion, and in the same time, assumed uh, $1 billion of CHS's worst junk kind of speculative grade debt. So Quorum was created out of the ruins, right, of the CHS private equity mega hospital chain that was created. Almost with, you know, the the least valuable properties, these rural hospitals, right, CHS decided it was going to move into more profitable sectors, reduce its holdings and eliminate its rural investments. Quorum Health was left with those least valuable investments and a billion dollars in really terrible debt and almost immediately began losing money and then selling properties itself, right? And so as I I call it in my column, rather than a sort of rural hospital operator, it really became a kind of rural hospital chop shop, just selling off these assets for whatever uh, bargain basement prices it could acquire. By the end of 2019 of the original 38 properties that that had been sort of put into the shell company of Quorum, 14 had been divested, four of them had been shut down entirely, many others continue to be financially struggling. And then in April of this year, Quorum itself declared bankruptcy. 
sort of inevitable outcome given the financial position the company had been put in at its at its creation. So again, the initial sort of creation of community health system reaped huge profits for the private equity firm that drove its expansion and the creation of its national system, but it did nothing to ameliorate the very sort of vulnerable financial position and in fact worsened the vulnerable financial system of the, uh, particularly the rural hospitals that were part of that acquisition. The hospitals that have closed down, uh, you know, we're talking, like you say, uh, jobs, uh, we're talking about retirees, particularly in the case of rural hospitals, we're talking about often the sole acute healthcare providers for large stretches of the local area, right? So these were often only hospitals that uh, provided acute care for in that county for, you know, 30 miles in any direction, whatever it might be. And so the health, the, the consequences for the communities in terms of their access to healthcare has, you know, has been really extraordinarily uh, detrimental. And then, and sort of, that was all sort of leading up to the, the disaster, the public health disaster and, right. and economic disaster, right, of the pandemic, right, which sort of has landed like a, a bomb on the rural healthcare market, one that's already been so hobbled and weakened by this sort of predatory investment over the last couple of decades. I'm sure. I'm sure in different parts of the country, in in these rural areas, there was there was community opposition to these closures. Uh, and I don't want to. I don't not familiar with it, and I certainly don't want to don't want to slight it. But it it does seem like there hasn't been a groundswell or an uproar uh, of the scale that you would might imagine, given that again, on average, about one rural hospital has been closing a month for for a decade now. So I'm I'm wondering, just you know, looking at the politics around this, if you can. Talk a little bit about why why that might be. I think the fact that these are, as we said earlier, distressed assets, right? These are rural hospitals in deeply distressed communities, often. Uh, And it's worth keeping in mind that private equity investment in hospitals, private equity is more likely to be invested in rural hospitals than non-private equity-owned hospitals is more likely to be in lower income communities. So so private equity really targets in a large part, rural, poor communities, in part because those communities to keep their hospitals open are are desperate for private investment. And in a moment like the one we are living in, uh, hopefully you know, prior to the passage of Medicare for all and a wholesale transformation of healthcare delivery in this country, there are not many places that financially distressed rural hospitals can turn for financial lifelines other than private investors, right? And they may even have, you know, even knowing the, the potential for that investment to be a predatory one, right? Or one that isn't necessarily, it might at a certain moment be the only thing that can keep the doors open, right? In the way that, you know, as you've, as you said at the outset, right? You know, we've seen something like 175 rural hospital closures since 2005. We've, of course, just had another election to remind us of that incredibly stark rural metropolitan political divide. And it's it's been for some time one of the great questions of U.S. politics that scholars like yourself, political strategists, organizers, and you know, many others have tried to make sense of. You've been working on this for some time and have written elsewhere that I'm going to I'm going to quote here. Um, any explanation of of this divide that we're all puzzling over, that we've all been puzzling over for some time, must emphasize the real conditions under which rural America has been systematically marginalized, exploited, 
and distanced from national centers of economic and social power, both historically and with increasing severity in recent years. So starting with the historical um, and then perhaps moving up in time, can you talk a bit about how this, this thing that we call rural America was cut off from the national centers of, of economic and social power and why that's important? Yeah, I mean, it's a big question, you know, <laughs> but I think, uh, you know, we, uh, since at least populist uprising of the late 19th century, if, if not before then, right, we've seen the kinds of ways in which capital that is sort of originates outside of uh, rural America has been used to extract various kinds of natural resources from coal and, and lumber to, you know, uh, crops of various kinds, right? Um, and created a sort of fundamentally unequal relationship between the centers of economic and political power in the country and the sort of rural hinterland, right? Or the rural kind of, well, the rural hinterland in the sense of kind of economic idea about that term. So, I mean, that's a very br abbreviated uh, sense of the historical, maybe not origins, but continuity here, right? And I think the thing that the growth of the uh, that the twentieth century sort of economic history and economic development did not alter. Right, was this fundamental dynamic? Right, even in the moment of kind of economic planning envisioned by the New Deal. Right, which uh, embraced a variety of uh, developmentalist programs aiming to sort of increase the economic uh, sort of. Uh, self-reliance uh, of um, rural America in different ways, you know, failed largely to disturb the sort of, or had no intention of altering the broader sort of arrangements of capital and, and property relations and or uh, centers of, of capital control and, 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 and investment in the country, right? And so rural America remained throughout the sort of New Deal and, and post-New Deal period, kind of dependent on outside capital, larger national markets, sort of junior partner in large parts to centers of economic activity, whether that was industrial activity or financial activity concentrated elsewhere. I think, you know, the, the current problem, let's say, or the current way in which this remains, you know, is, I, I would say, the failure of, you know, the Democratic Party, let's say, as a kind of stand-in, inadequate though it may be for the left in America to articulate a kind of economic agenda for rural America that is able to undo that sort of historically entrenched economic disadvantage and marginalization that still confronts rural America and is, you know, one of the causes of, you know, why these communities uh, that we've been talking about where that rural hospitals serve are so economically distressed to begin with, right? Why rural America is by and large poorer than urban America, why it's more underinsured than urban America, why it has worse, worse health outcomes and health disparities to begin with than urban America, right? And the economic causes for that are clear. The economic solutions to that have been few and far between, right? Even the, you know, kind of platform of the Democratic Party. And so it, it makes rural America in a variety of ways, a sort of, on the one hand, you know, landscape that's ripe for predatory investment, right? And on the other hand, you know, as we see politically, prone to all kinds of uh, sort of reactionary politics, right? And 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 a, and a and a real problem, I would say, you know, for progressive organizers and progressive movement builders who see rural America rightly, in an I, I would say, in an, at least in an electoral sense, right now, as 
an obstacle, right, to that, right, as a source of the conservative opposition. And I think that that is a legacy of, in addition to the sort of field day that private equity investors and other kinds of predatory capitalists have had in, in, in making money off of these assets, uh, you know, ripe for that kind of uh, political behavior. Yeah, it's, it's, it's sort of an unfair question to pose <laughs> one that, that political thinkers and, and others have struggled with for over a century to answer in about three minutes. <laughs> um, but uh, I, to, to, to bring it all together, to bring kind of what you're talking about right now with the politics of rural America with, back together with the financialization of private equity, it, it seems clear from, from, from this discussion and from your article that rural communities affected by these closures are, are victims of the same kind of destructive financialization that costs urban workers their jobs, retirees, their pensions, that drives gentrification in our cities and intensifies rent for tenants, that, that advances privatization agendas all over the place, and so on. So if, if nothing else, all of this illustrates that, you know, one thing that people and working people in rural and urban America do very much have in common. So do you think that, that this, this common ground provides a basis for beginning to break down this political divide that, that you were just describing? Or, or is that too deeply rooted, too, too um, longstanding to begin to chip away at? No, I mean, I, I, you know, Samir, I think you're exactly right. And I think it's, it's exactly the way I'm thinking about it and, and was thinking about it as I was looking into this over the summer and, and in writing the, the column. Um, you know, I think the, 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 the challenge the, or the, the challenge and the opportunity, though I recognize it as a challenging opportunity, uh, mm-hmm. is to identify these points of a kind of class-based kind of co- coalition building, I would say, between urban and rural America. And I think thinking about the destructive influence of financialization as having, right, as, as contributing to the gentrification, right, and of our urban centers and the sort of undermine, you know, the kind of mass evictions and, and making in, uninhabitable the urban core for working people, people of color, and and the sort of, you know, financialization of, of the rural healthcare market is a perfect example of where you know, a common enemy and a common sort of class experience can and should be, I would want to believe, grist for, you know, the kind of multi-regional, multi-racial, cl- working class, political coalition building that I think it is going to be absolutely necessary to uh, envision and realize if we're going to break out of the sort of political stalemate of, you know, the current moment. Great. Well, I think that's a, a really nice way to, to wrap this up. Max, thank you so much for joining us. I really enjoyed this, this discussion. Yeah, me too. Yeah. Um, and, and thanks to the, the, the audience for being here for, for another COVID capitalism series. I hope everyone's having a, a, a safe, oh, we'll have a safe holiday and we'll, we'll join us for, you know, we got several more of these going scheduled for the rest of the year. Um, so thanks again, Max. Thanks everyone. And we'll, uh, we'll see you next time. Thanks, Amir. Issues like those raised in today's podcast are taken up in classroom discussions at the School of Labor and Urban Studies, where our preeminent faculty and engaged and diverse student body grapple with the most pressing challenges confronting organized labor and working class communities. For more information about the school, visit slu.cuny.edu. To learn more about the podcast and listen to other episodes, visit slu.cuny.edu slash podcast. 
and to subscribe to New Labor Forum or sign up for our free monthly newsletter, visit newlaborforum.cuny.edu.